I think there are four things that uh, get in the way of the advancement of the gospel, the world, the flesh, the devil, and AV equipment. <laughs> the uh, culture uh, in which I come, and many of you come, uh, American culture, has been over the last few years, there's this obsession with identity, uh, specifically uh, affirming certain cultural aspects of our identity. Now, this affirmation is, is I think I would describe as kind of internal and external. That is to say, you must, or you, you, we feel the obligation to affirm who we are in accordance to the world standards, but the, and that's the internal. The external is that um, we expect those around us to also affirm who we say that we are, assuming that who we are is kind of like this, almost like this platonic, eternal, static, almost divine self that we affirm and everyone uh, needs to uh, affirm. Elevating the self almost to the point of dogma that you're not allowed to question. And if you do question, there may be something wrong with you that requires some, maybe a little re-education on, on your part. Now, I don't want to disparage the self. Uh, I certainly want to pursue uh, who we are truly, and from the Christian perspective, where, where, of course, we want to affirm the image of God. That's what we are. We've been made in the image of God, and we live the image of God. Uh, but the wisdom of the world is it has really uh, uh, gone far away from the Christian concept of, of the self, right? And who, uh, who we are and how we are to live. How we are to live, okay? So, and, and, and the, the, the big difference is that um, we are not to live ourselves, right? We are, uh, um, we no longer live. Christ lives uh, in us, okay? So there's a, there's a big difference from saying, uh, you know, affirm who I am uh, and then deny yourself from uh, the Christian perspective. Romans 12, that's our text for today, uh, reminds us that our identity is not tied to that of uh, the world's. And let's go ahead and read the passage. You have a copy of it printed in your bulletin, page 11, or you can listen along. Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service 
in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes, in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The, the last time I was here, we considered Romans 11, uh, and, and I've been doing sort of a series in uh, Romans. Uh, Romans 11 de- deals with how God has not abandoned Israel, the Israelite community, um, as much of the discourse in Romans is, is focused really on all humanity, uh, in particular the uh, uh, Gentiles. Uh, redemption is all of one piece. All are one, are, all are one in Christ who are saved by that same Messiah. And today we want to continue our discussion of the oneness of the body of Christ um, by looking at chapter 12. And here Paul makes a clear transition to the application of the doctrines, previous doctrines, explained. He's interested in how to live within the theology or the doctrines of grace, like I said, that we talked about in the previous uh, chapters. And note that our lives depend on this theology. And it's often tempting, uh, just as a side note, it's often tempting to, to, to separate or divorce doctrine from life, to downplay every iota of doctrine or theology to elevate the Christian life. But zeal without knowledge uh, is, is groundless, uh, not, not, not to mention just bland and boring. <laughs> So theologians often talk about a distinction, if you want to write this down in your notes, there's a distinction between the indicative and the imperative. The indicative refers to basically the conditions of being, the conditions of life. You could say who you are. The imperative relates to how you live in accordance with that indicative. It's just a shorthand way of understanding the relationship between doctrine and life. And the two need to um, stay together. And as is the custom here at WSBC and and, uh, fraternal affiliates, um, I'm going to give you my main point. It's this. God's grace 
effectively moves his people to live humble lives of service. That's central to Romans 12. God's grace effectively moves his people to live humble lives of service. And I want to break this, I want to break down the activity of living. And let's focus on this idea of living. Romans 12, you might say, there's, there's more of an emphasis on the practical. We may sometimes think that the practical is a little bit easier. It may not be easier. <laughs> if you think about some of the things that we are called uh, to do, uh, and there's a lot of, Paul repeats a lot of things, right? So it may seem like a long passage. It's not really, it's not really that long. It's pretty rich. But anyway, I want to focus on the living aspect and break the living down into four parts to support this main idea of living humble lives of service. So point number one, Paul encourages us in verses one through two to be living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. And he begins uh, with a bit of urgency. I urge you, I strongly encourage you, I beseech you. Therefore, by the mercies of God, that is, I urgently call you to live, to follow the entire unfolding of God's mercies from chapter 1 to chapter 11 and 12. Maybe you could tack on 13 with that as well. Now, what are these mercies of God? Well, you know, quick summary, God has created all of humanity with the knowledge of him, his, invis his invisible attributes are clearly seen in the things that are made. It includes us. God's law is written on our, our, on our hearts. We have fallen woefully short of, of his righteousness. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. But he has a plan whereby we can become right before God. And unlike any other religion, Christianity, faith, Christian faith is a resting and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Which leads you uh, to respond in thankfulness to God. It's a quick, you know, I've mentioned it here before, but sometimes, you know, we may be cornered in life and people will ask us, what Tell me a little bit about this uh, hope that you have. Uh, and there's a nice shorthand way of explaining the gospel, the, the sort of elevator uh, pitch, if you will, right? Um, and one way to remember it is to remember three G's. Sorry, I haven't translated this, so it's, it's in English. Uh, three G's, uh, that is guilt, how sinful we are before God, we've fallen short. Guilt, grace, God has extended his favor to us. And as a result of that, the, 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 uh, God declaring us right before him, having peace with God, now we transition into gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Right? Very easy uh, for us to remember. That is the uh, quick and easy summary of the gospel. Sear that into your, uh, into your minds. And this passage deals with the third G, right? the, the gratitude uh, portion. Okay, the gratitude portion. Okay, so this idea of living 
admittedly may sound a bit strange. Okay? Because in, you know, sacrifices in the Old Testament were pretty nasty. But the life of a New Testament Christian is a living offering. That is, we are to give unto God every day. We should strive to give to God every day. Our entire person. Don't elevate one part of our identity or our, our person uh, and maybe relegate another. Um, one, one, uh, one of the most genius philosophers of the 20th century also happened to be a Christian philosopher, and he developed a, a Christian philosophy. In his reflection on what it means to be a human being, he, he came up with a human is a compilation, compilation of 15 different ways of living or different ways of being. And let's go through each one. Just kidding. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I won't talk, I, I won't get into all of them, but some of them are, and this makes sense to us, right? Who are, we, who are we as human beings? Well, what are these ways of being? Well, we're biological, okay? We're emotional, we're logical, uh, aesthetic, right? We, 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 there is an attraction to uh, beauty. Uh, we're economic, we're cultural beings, we're ethical beings, but at the center, this is very important. We are religious beings. No human being on earth could ever say that I'm not religious. That you're not really. You may be religious. I'm not religious. Philosophically, that is uh, problematic. We're cultural beings. We're ethical beings. But at the center, this is very important. We are religious beings. No human being on earth could ever say that I'm not religious. That you're not really. You may be religious. I'm not religious. Philosophically, that is. Uh, problematic. So, so all of these, and I know that wasn't 15, but uh, all of these constitute uh, our core uh, being, right? Uh, they constitute the mind, right? And, and the mind in the New Testament, that word mind, doesn't just relate to our brain. Uh, it, it, it refers to the focal point or the concentration of our entire existence. Another word for it is the heart. The heart. There's so much involved in the heart, and it's 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 that heart that connects us to the uh, Creator. The Book of Ecclesiastes uh, talks about how a God has placed eternity into our hearts. That's sort of weird to think to, to think that way. But what that means is that that's kind of like the connection that we have to uh, God, our Creator. Now think also uh, of what Paul says uh, elsewhere. Whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10. Now what does it mean to eat and drink to the glory of God? Have you ever like, thought about that? Like the, I'm, and I'm talking about like the actual process of eating and drinking. What does that mean to do it for the honor and glory of God? I'm not sure. Right? Um, but I think it's, it's uh, we could take joy in, in kind of talking about it, right? Figuring out we can glorify God and enjoy Him by exploring what it really means to eat and drink to the glory of God. I mean, obviously there is clear things about eating and drinking, gluttony, drunkenness, those are obviously clear uh, directives. 
Now, Paul says, offer yourself in this way as your uh, reasonable or logical uh, worship. In fact, the, 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 the most direct translation is logical worship. That is to say, it derives necessarily from the grace of God. It's not a choice that you can uh, make. It is a growing, an activity of growing more and more into God's gracious work of sanctification uh, in our life. Now, such growth will come in the face of numerous unrelenting distractions, every wind of doctrine or problems with the AV system. Um, hence the reason why Paul talks about the transportation of our mind slash heart. And that Greek word transform is the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Right? And, and really what Paul is getting at is he's contrasting conformity with transformation. We are to flee one way of living to live another. It means communicating not only with God, but also meditating on that which is good in God's creation. And once again, just like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, in his letter to Philippi, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is lovely or beautiful, there's educators in this room, right? Our focal point is, one focal point, is uh, pursuing truth, goodness, beauty. And we're encouraged to meditate on those uh, issues and draw conclusions and have discussions with one another to glorify God as we do it. The world, in verse 2, re relates to the... Um, the environment, the culture, or the ethos that is set against God. There's different, different ways of understanding or defining the word, word world. We won't get into all of them. But this one is anything that's set uh, against a God. God forbid, in the Old Testament, God forbid certain activities of his people because certain practices were too closely associated with pagan civilization. And there's something similar here in the New Testament not so much in regard to appearance or context, but in our heart's desire to seek the world's approval. That's what we need to avoid. As one contemporary theologian uh, says, we watch what the world is doing and we want to win its approval. We don't want to be rejected. So we allow the standards and customs of our culture to dictate our behavior instead of the Word of God. And sadly, and, and I'm sure you could see this too, but many Christians fall into the habits of the world. world. We may say that, look, I'm going to be separate from the world. Right? We say it verbally. Maybe we really, really believe it deep down, but our habits may betray what we, what we say. This process of transformation uh, deepens our identity in Christ. And that's why uh, uh, you know, Paul says this is how we test or discern or prove our transformation. When we desire to become, let's say, good basketball players, what do we do? We practice, we practice, we practice. You can learn the rules of the game, you know the theory of uh, basketball, but in order to be a basketball player, you've got to practice, practice, practice. Okay? So that 
you know, uh, you can prove to yourself and to others that you can play, right? Or take any sport or mus musical uh, talent. Okay. Now, the primary means by which we th this this sense of practice, practice, practice is by saturating saturating ourselves with God's word and participating in the body of Christ, particularly in word and sacraments. This gets us to our second point. Living gifts, verses 3 through 8. A sacrificial life is cultivated by living gifts, that is, gifts found in the communion of saints. Now, the word communion comes from the prefix come, meaning union or with oneness. This oneness, of course, stems from our union with Christ. If we are Christians, we are supernaturally in Christ, and he is in us. And because of the bond we have in Christ, we have union among ourselves. And God has deemed it necessary for his people to maintain that, those bonds of fellowship. Now, we have to also kind of preface this before we look at the gifts. We have to preface this by saying that uh, this communal strength, if you will, strengthening the bonds of communion, come through sincere humility uh, and service for others. Dying to ourselves for others. We have the example of the Corinthian church. It was torn apart with strife because members wanted to elevate their gifts and offenses above others. There was an ongoing battle for power and status in that congregation. I can't, I can't imagine the, uh, the, 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 the totem that uh, the Corinthian church was to Paul. Right? And Paul writes rhetorically, right? uh, he says, If the ear should say, because I am not an ear, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Later in verse 10 of chapter 12, he talks of giving preference uh, to one another. We are not to seek honor for ourselves, but rather to reflect or deflect honor to others. Because the, a lack of humility divides the congregation. It divides the, the uh, community of believers. Now let's let's be clear. You know there are things that uh, there are sort of dividing lines that we have, right? In uh, in the Christian life, doctrine should should, should be one of those things that obviously uh, makes a clear distinction. But articulating differences in doctrines, whether primary or secondary, essential or non-essential, uh, shouldn't be something that divides us. Uh, unless, of course, as we as I said already, unless it is uh, denying those fundamentals of, uh, of the faith. Okay. I had an experience years ago where a student came to me and she was very, uh, 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 you know, she, she, she seemed to be in a very good mood, good disposition, and uh, I was talking about her faith and she says, yes, I'm a Christian, I love Christianity, it's great. Um, you know, I affirm and I believe in God. I just don't buy this whole Trinity thing. I just don't accept that Jesus was fully God. And I 
I broke it to her. I said, I hate to break it to you, uh, but it doesn't work that way. Right? So there was a clear divide between us, uh, and, and we continued in our conversation, and she, she, she eventually started breaking down in, uh, uh, in tears. Um, we continued to talk, and then, um, and then at the end of the year, she stopped me. I was, I was like outside, walking down the block, and she ran up to me. She said, I'm Trinitarian now. I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, you want to get a cup of coffee first? Uh, anyway. Um, but God's grace should inspire uh, humility. This is why Paul encourages member, members of the church not to think too highly of themselves. Right? to think in a sober manner in regard to the grace given to them. That word sober, or sober-minded, in a sober manner, doesn't refer to abstaining from alcohol, which is fine for you to do if you want to do that. I do it. Um, it means to reflect carefully about ourselves. Perhaps what we say or what we do in a particular context. Treating others more highly than we do ourselves will actually contribute to strengthening the bonds of unity within the church. Those who pursue their own glory not only separate themselves from the community, but also divide it. And later in, in chapter 12, and I'll just mention it right now, but later in chapter 12, Paul warns against pursuing not spiritually high things, but high positions in the world. Some people are driven by status. They desire to be exalted over others. And these are these fleshly ambitions, worldly ambitions that he's warning against. All throughout Scripture, we see that God is the, is the defender of those of low esteem, uh, low reputation, the marginalized, the outcast. Jesus himself became that. I mean, can you wrap your brain around this exalted second person of the Trinity taking on the form of a servant, being born in, I don't know, probably the worst place, right? Gross place, gross town, city, right? I mean, at least, you know, come to Shanghai or something. It's, 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 it's like going to L.A. <laughs> as opposed to Shanghai or something like that. Um, so you can imagine the, the, the way in which Christ gives the example uh, of himself as an exalted individual who, who humbles himself. Um, there, there's been a, this famous podcast, uh, maybe some of you have heard it, uh, about the rise and fall of a very popular uh, megachurch in the United States. Um, and uh, um, really the rise and fall of this church my conclusion is it revolved around the leader of the church who really thought highly of himself, um, which then really uh, hurt relationships and, and hurt uh, other people. Well, that's enough of, uh, of that. As, as prefessorial remarks for this point number two, let's consider what are these living gifts? Paul encourages us to search out the gifts within the body of, of Christ. Now, what are these gifts? Now, they don't refer to just about anything, right? You may have someone who, who hey, I, I can play the drums. 
Oh, that's great. You know, I can paint murals. I can, I can uh, cook a bang-up uh, pancake breakfast. That's great. That's good. But let's really focus on what Romans uh, 12 is talking about. What are the gifts that they're, they're talking about? Prophecy, teaching, exhorting, acts of mercy and service, generosity. And these are pretty easy to understand. We don't have to spend too much time on them, with the exception of I, I would focus on prophecy. Let's consider prophecy. What do we mean by prophecy here? Finding those who are good at prophecy. Well, it doesn't refer to predicting or having some sort of special extra-biblical visions, but of having a deep understanding of the Scriptures. So search out those who have a deep understanding of Scripture. John Calvin says in his commentary on this passage that prophecy at this day in the Christian church is hardly anything else than the right understanding of the Scriptures and the peculiar faculty of explaining it inasmuch as all the ancient prophecies and all the oracles of God have been completed in Christ and in his gospel. So in the New Testament context, the prophecy was the one who understood the developments in the Old Testament, like someone like Paul, and connected it to Christ. So imagine being in that context. We may take this for granted, uh, um, in our day and age as, uh, 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 as believers. But imagine way back in those days, people making a connection between the prophets or, or, or the sacrifices, the shadows in the Old Testament to then fulfilling in, in Christ. Mind-blowing. That is revolutionary uh, to, to a, lot of, a lot of people. Um, now, prophecy also has a connection with teaching and exhorting. Uh, both teaching and exhorting share a common sort of um, root in their meaning and are connected to faithful um, uh, explanations of the Word of God. And then, of course, there's also the element of wise leadership connected to this. Those who explain the Word should be doing so for the edification of the body, to lead the body. Acts of mercy and generosity, meeting the needs of members of the church and doing so liberally, without complaining or having concern for your sort of material loss as you help others. Have you ever experienced the, the love and the contributions of God's people to you? I have. Even here in Shanghai. Uh, some of you know, maybe you don't know, maybe you've forgotten but the way in which that you served my family, my, my wife, uh, my, my children, and really even like in simple, in simple ways. Um, big ways, small ways, and not just like financial help or aid. Um, when we first got to uh, Shanghai, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't have a mattress. And a member of this congregation, they're in the US right now, they gave us their old mattress. It's fantastic. That could just bring me to tears just thinking about it. That's so nice. And it's a great mattress. We're still using it. Um, so it, it, you really feel a connection to the community when you are the recipient of that humble uh, service. Now, we should also know that most of these responsibilities are attached directly 
to the officers of the church. Uh, two main groups, elders, deacons. Elders can be split up into teaching elders and ruling elders. And, and uh, deacons, deacon simply means a servant. Uh, to a certain degree, every one of you in here, you're a servant, you're a deacon, if you are a member of the church, but then there's also the uh, official role of um, deacon. But these, also, these gifts also extend to all the members of, of the uh, congregation. Someone who has a gift for teaching um, you know, falls into this uh, category. Someone who has a gift for generosity. I never really think about uh, uh, you know, having the gift of uh, generosity. Uh, but there are those who will give uh, willingly. And so search out these, these individuals. Search out these uh, uh, people. Offer yourself of service as well. Number three, all of this, your humility, your service, your life as a sacrificial uh, individual, must be motivated by love. And here we get into the section uh, verses 9 through 15. Part of this love, part of this humble living, is to abhor, that is to hate, evil. We'll talk more about evil in a second. But the next term, the term translated cling, cling to what is good in Greek, actually means to glue yourself to that which is good. We are to hang on tightly to that which is good, allowing it to be cemented to our, our, our entire souls that we do not drop or lose it with the next wind of cultural fantasy that may uh, come our way, right? Keep, that, keep hold of that, that grip. That grip will, that will then kind of strengthen, for you fitness nuts, it'll strengthen your core, right? The core of your, your being. When we do this, that is, diligently flee evil, we are strengthened in our hope. And this hope, in turn, allows us to endure tribulations. When we face the onslaught of the world, we don't need to respond in kind. Rather, we can bless those who persecute us. And that means to pray that God would bestow upon them his favor and his grace. Now, this is difficult to do. You know, why do we fail to keep the Lord's instruction in, in this regard? Why do we often respond in kind? Well, perhaps we haven't lowered ourselves. We've, perhaps we've elevated ourselves even above that of God, and therefore above our neighbor. Now here's another strategy to strengthen the body of Christ in this regard, in, in regard to gifts. We should rejoice when those who rejoice, with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. When we, when we rejoice with someone, we communicate to that person that they are highly regarded. I'm not regarded, you're highly regarded. It encourages us to be really in tune with the needs of others. To listen to others, I mean really listening and engaging, which then strengthens our fellowship. There's a reason why 
in English, there's a phrase that says, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. The flip side of that is listening is a lot harder. Proverbs talks about how the fool is the one who opens his mouth wide. He wants to just talk, 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 usually about himself or herself. But listening is really difficult for us to do. Uh, failing to do so, failing to really listen to someone or to be there for, uh, for someone <clears throat> can communicate a sort of a cold heart, a person you don't necessarily want to be around. And sometimes we just need to be there for someone. <clears throat> there may not be, and there rarely ever is, any magic words that will dissolve someone's, someone's tears. Sometimes we just need to be silent. Sometimes we need to weep with them, just be with them. Right? So, if someone rejoices, rejoice with them. If someone is crying, cry uh, with them. Sometimes we're, we're, we're embarrassed to do this. We see someone who's in pain or hurting, and we don't know what to do. And I, I will give that feeling the benefit of, of the doubt. But we really need to break through that feeling of like, oh, I just I don't want to bother them. Leave them um, to themselves. Right? I had a, I had a, a close co-worker uh, years ago. He was, um, he was laid off from his job. Uh, it was a big surprise to actually 66% of the entire faculty was laid off. And he was laid off too. And everyone who was laid off, they were all alone. Nobody even came to their office, right? Um, because everybody kind of felt embarrassed at, at, those, at those moments. And all I could do was just go to my friend and, and just like, I couldn't say anything. So here I am packing, helping him pack up his office. Oh, it was just the strangest, the heaviest feeling that I've ever uh, felt. The next day I went to his house, and then the day after that I went to his house to see how he was doing. Uh, well, this gets us to our fourth and final point related to living. So living sacrifices, living gifts, right? living love, motivated by love, um, Paul talks about living peaceful lives, living in peace, verses 16 through 21. Living lives of humility, putting ourselves aside, being there for others, these are all essential to living peacefully with others. And peace, the Greek word for peace, uh, we have an English translation of the word uh, irenic. I, how do you pronounce it? I don't know. Irenic, Irenic, uh, I R E N I C. Um, I don't know if anybody uses that word anymore. Irenic, uh, but the English word Irenic uh, means uh, to aim at peace. To aim at peace. Right? Okay, so it's someone who may have a difference of opinion with you about you know uh, whatever it is. Um, and they may want to try to convince you of something, but their goal is not necessarily to win an argument. Their goal is to establish peace between the two. Okay? So as we interact with those in the world who say, you know, I don't, I don't believe in God, 
uh, or they, they, they ask you for the hope that you have, your aim should be that of peace between, between you. Paul ends this discourse with probably the worst example of putting ourselves above others, and that is retaliation for evil. Now that's kind of the opposite of, of course, it's the opposite of peace. Evil. Now here, evil, Paul is referring to moral evil, unrighteousness, godliness, disobedience, hate, um, and I think it's, it's really strong in the sense that it includes the kind of evil that uh, uh, seeks to hurt another, kind of in a, even in a premeditative way. And when, when someone hurts us, we oftentimes plan or look for opportunities to wound the one who has wounded us. Right? What do we want to do? We want to get even. You did something to me, I'm going to do something to you. It's going to be pretty bad. But I, but I honestly, I don't think we really want to get even with someone. A tit for tat. I think we want to dominate the other. To get one up on another. To act as the judge the judge, jury, and executioner over uh, someone else. Right? Uh, it's, it's not, you know, I, I, I don't want uh, to... Here's a pop reference for the, for the more mature people in, in the room. I, I want to, you know, we don't want to just win a match. We want to sweep the leg. Do you know that reference? Not, nobody does? There you go! <laughs> You got a karate kid, right? You know, they got the they got the match, and um, Daniel Ralph Macchio is he can win the match, uh, but the other guy that he's fighting against, his his uh, his sensei says, "Don't just win the match, sweep the leg," which would put him out of commission. I think that's the kind of evil that we're talking about. It's not like it's not you did this. I'm going to do this. No, man, I'm going to go even further. Right? I'm not going to. I'm not going to uh, 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 isolate you, neutralize you. I'm going to bury you, <laughs> right? That's the kind of uh, evil, extreme evil that uh, God, uh, that Paul is talking about here. Well, um, this this disposition uh, obviously is something that's contrary to Scripture, um, and it's something that we need to battle against. When we take revenge, we put ourselves in the place of God. A retaliatory mind is one that lacks trust in God, trust that he will protect his own, and he will defend us. As we read in the parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18, even an unjust ruler occasionally meets out justice the one who constantly asks. Well, how much more will our Heavenly Father bring justice? Shall God, Jesus asked, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I don't know how long that's going to take. It could take quite a long time. In this podcast that I mentioned earlier, some of the people that were 
hurt deeply. There was no reconciliation until, for some of them, seven years later. For someone who's seeking reconciliation, seven years can be a long time. One story came from uh, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was unjustly accused of sin by a malicious uh, individual in his own congregation. He was so humiliated, he was kicked out of his parish in Massachusetts, uh, went to a different ministry. Uh, Edwards' friends actually uh, uh, begged him to speak in his own defense, but he refused. because he, he knew that vengeance is the Lord's, and the Lord will repay. Now, Edwards wanted to be vindicated. He feared, however, that if he sought to vindicate himself, however successful, it would still be less than the vindication that the Lord would eventually work on his behalf. And, and consider what the results. Edwards' accuser was so overcome by his guilt that a decade later, he confessed to the congregation that he had lied about Edwards. And Edwards was still alive to um, uh, see this. You know, um, when we return evil for evil, we miss the opportunity to minister to the offender. Right? When we think, okay, I'm going to let the Lord take revenge. I'm going to let the Lord bury this individual. Well, maybe we need to think about it in a different way. We miss an opportunity to draw in the outsider and strengthen the communion of saints. So instead of vengeance, we should provide for the needs of our enemies. As it says in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And notice that we're not uh, called to ask our enemy why he is hungry or thirsty. Maybe it's your fault leading to the position that if they don't deserve our help, if they've done this evil to themselves, our job is to bind up their wounds. Right? And in showing kindness to our enemies, uh, the, the latter part of chapter 12 says, we heap burning coals uh, on their head. Now there's various translations as to what that means. Okay? And it's taken from Proverbs Chapter 25, some have interpreted this as the actions that, that the actions of kindness end up heaping more divine judgment on the heads of our enemies. Perhaps it means, here's another interpretation, that our enemies will feel great shame when we do good to them. One Protestant uh, reformer says that uh, our enemy shall either be softened by our benefits, by the goodness we show to them, or if he be so savage that nothing can tame him, he shall yet be burnt and tormented by the testimony of his own conscience on finding himself overwhelmed with your kindness. He can be softened, <laughs> softened, or his conscience will torment him. So our metamorphosis logically leads us to live at peace with all men. The peacemaker, as Matthew 5 says, is an heir of the Lord. So as much as it depends on you, 
Paul says, a spirit of vengeance and retaliation can actually exacerbate tensions. It can make matters worse. Now, this doesn't mean we should be a doormat. That is to say, we, are, we don't let people just walk all over us. And I think Paul is a good example of someone who, you know, he didn't always let people walk all over him. His civil rights were offended, broken. It's an instance where he was thrown in a Roman prison and they didn't know he was a Roman. And Paul's, Paul's like, I want to speak to the manager. How dare you do this to me? Right? Um, so we have to discern what are the things, and, and, and I think if we, if we bring up uh, any sort of transgression, let's say, or, or defense against us, remember to do it in humility. Now one thing that we should be reminded of is our identity as sojourners. You know, taking revenge, placing ourselves in a loftier status may be indicative of a belief that we sort of own a portion of this earth that it's ours, and how dare you take it from me, from me. But this current form of the world is not ours. It's not ours necessarily to fight for. In the Old and the New Testament, the Jews under Babylonian rule were encouraged to live at peace with all men, to settle down, to plant gardens, to contribute to the peace of Babylon. The opening of 1 Peter reminds us that we, here in the New Testament, those of us in the New Testament, we're, we're called sojourners and exiles. Such a mindset, I think, makes it easy for, easier for us to live at peace with all men. And one final note before we conclude, we should remember that living this life of gratitude is not one of perfection. It's, it's a pursuit. Living your, your life of gratitude is a pursuit. We're going to make mistakes. And when we do, we need to acknowledge them before God and to those we've offended. Maybe we haven't lived humble lives. We haven't rightly divided the word of truth. We've aspired to a lofty, worldly position. It's never too late to return to that disposition outlined in Romans 12 to act in, in a humble way. And Paul encourages us, pursue it. He's urgent in this request to pursue that. The Christian life is not a life of worldly self-affirmation, but one of true love and peace. So, to Christians, live in light of the mercies of God and present yourself entirely as a living sacrifice. This is a testimony to yourself and to the world of who you are in Christ. Live sacrificially in accordance with the gifts freely offered to you. And as we say, do, do so in love and in the pursuit of peace.